Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch, our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com in our merch store. And join our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, for weekly bonus episodes, access to our Discord channel, and so much more. This week's episode was so fabulous. Pitchfork's Anna Gata came onto the show, and we were reflecting on Dua Lipa's future nostalgia on the eve of new Dua Lipa music. We were sitting down to reflect on this record that made Dua Lipa a superstar. So it's a great episode, as are all of our Patreon episodes. So join us there at Pop Pantheon All Access. You can get that by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode or by going to patreon.com slash pop pantheon gorgeous gorgeous my queer pop party has upcoming installments in both new york and los angeles we will be in brooklyn at the sultan room on february 3rd and then we will be at los globos in silver lake in los angeles on february 17th links to buy tickets to both of those parties will be in the show notes of this episode i can't wait to see some of you there all right so today we're kicking off a double header about the black eyed peas and Fergie. This week's episode will cover the entire kind of insane, audacious, malleable, chameleonic, inane, but also sometimes thrilling career of the Black Eyed Peas. And next week, we will be diving specifically into the equally kind of nuts career of their breakout superstar vocalist, Fergie. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon Black Eyed Peas. Are the Black Eyed Peas the most derided pop act in history? Maybe that's a stretch. Maybe just of the 21st century, or maybe they're the most despised act of the 21st century who were this successful for this long. Whatever the case, a lot of people really fucking hate the Black Eyed Peas. Prepping for this episode and going back to some of the reviews or canvassing friends or even trying to find a willing guest was kind of brutal. If you simply type, why are the Black Eyed Peas into Google, the third suggestion is so bad. But having spent the last few weeks making these episodes, I can say for certain that, in spite of making some of the most garish, craven, operatically tacky, and stupid nearly to the point of avant-garde music, that I don't hate the Black Eyed Peas at all. Actually, I quite like a lot of their songs and find them, at turns, rather charming in their earnest inanity. I also find myself weirdly respecting how unabashedly they set their sights on Pop's ooeyest, gooeyest center, with no pretense of being something other than music for literally everyone they could imagine. Or at least everyone who could see stomach them. In the era of the super serious auteur pop star, there was something relaxing about absorbing a group who encouraged me over and over again to quote, get stupid. And most importantly, for an act that so many so audibly seemed to loathe. Over their near decade of detested dominance, they sure were able to get off a whole lot of memorable and enduring hit records. What you gonna do with all that junk? All that junk inside that trunk. I'ma get, 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 get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. What you gonna do with all that ass, all that ass inside of jeans? I'ma make, 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 make you scream, make you scream, make you scream. Cause 
The first two members of the Black Eyed Peas, William James Adams Jr., aka Will I Am, and Alan Pinetta Lindo Jr., aka Apple D. App, met at an all ages dance club in LA in the late 80s. They formed a hip hop crew and were briefly signed to Easy E, but their first album was shelved in 1993. Will, the de facto leader of the group, was, from the jump, a musical polyglot as steeped in hip hop culture as he was in the LA rave scene. Two years later, Will and Apple formed a new group, the Black Eyed Pods, quickly renamed the Black Eyed Peas, adding a third canonical member, Taboo, to the clique. The Peas, from the beginning, had a very specific ethos. They existed in a lineage of hip-hop acts who celebrated optimism, political and social wokeness before that was a thing, good values, fun, and approachability. Conscious rap, as it was then known, in the face of gangster rap, the rougher, raw, more commercially dominant strain of hip-hop in the mid to late 90s, as well as the shiny suit crossover pop rap of Puff Daddy and crew. They also put forth their multiculturalism, Will is Black, Apple Filipino, and Taboo Mexican-American, as a proud and aspirational bad of honor. After scoring a deal with Interscope, the Peas released two records, 1998's Behind the Front and 2000's Bridging the Gap. While traditional rapping skills were never their calling card, both of these albums were explicitly anti-materialism and violence, fun-loving, classically-minded, and brimming with capital P positivity. They also found the Peas working with a number of female foils, ranging from de facto fourth member the soul singer Kim Hill to Estero and Macy Gray. While neither record made a huge commercial impact, Gap's propulsive breezy party anthem request line featuring gray made it to number 63 on the hot 100. Facing the prospect of toiling forever in relative obscurity, Will and crew were encouraged by then-label boss Ron Fair to consider moving away from their high-minded but low-selling ideology and more directly towards their pop instincts. While initially reticent, they eventually agreed. Well, most of them agreed. Hill chafed at the concept of sexing up her image in order to fulfill the group's pop ambitions and promptly quit. This sent the Peas on a quest for a new female member. After recording with a number of singers, they began to cut records for their third album, Elephant, with Stacey Ann Fergie Ferguson, a singer and a former child star who just left a struggling girl group, Wild Orchid, and was recovering from meth addiction. Fergie ended up providing vocals for five tracks on Elefunk, an album which drastically reimagined the band's sound, ethics, and scope. Here, the piece took a whatever-it-takes-everything-and-the-kitchen-sink-of-pop-radio approach. This ran the gamut from ragga dancehall to mosh party rock to battle of the sexes pure pop melodrama. There were obvious samples and interpolations from Madonna Holiday to Antonio Carlos Joe Beam's Bossa Nova classic Insensates. The lyrics and themes too got overhauled and very explicitly dumbed down. For the most part, these songs celebrated partying, sex, and dancing in the most extravagantly simplistic terms imaginable. With this new sound came an image overhaul. When Elefunk was released, Fergie was front and center in marketing materials, midriff bare, and positioned as a lead singer despite being featured on less than half of the album's tracks. The twist, however, is that it was a rare leftover from their conscious days that officially broke the peas onto pop radio. Inspired by Will.i.am's post-9-11 anxieties, Elefunk's lead single, Where is the Love, tackled everything from terrorism to racism and pollution to the deep state. And airsats what's going on for the kids' bop generation, Love featured vocals from Justin Timberlake, who also wrote the hook, and it became the band's first top 10 hit. What you preach and what you turn the other 
Following Love, Elefunk became a sleeper success, eventually selling over 3 million copies and producing two other gold singles, Shut Up and Hey Mama, as well as the triple platinum rager, Let's Get It Started. Will I Am and Fergie also both had solo ambitions. Will I Am had already released two solo records to that point, but they set aside their plans for individual albums to capitalize on the success of Elefunk, doubling down on big tent pop maximalism with 2005's Monkey Business. Led by the group's biggest single to date, the number three peaking Lisa Lisa sampling and Fergie-centric Don't Funk With My Heart, Monkey Business sold more than 4 million copies in the US and did huge numbers internationally, selling an additional 5 million copies around the globe. The album produced two more top 20 hits, Don't Lie and Pump It, and another global smash in the P's most controversial song, the gaudy campy ode to the female anatomy, My Humps, which went top five and was certified double platinum. The next year, Fergie rolled out a blockbuster solo album, The Duchess, that outsold all of the band's albums to date in the US and made her a bona fide superstar. We will be discussing that in more detail in next week's episode. In 2009, the group reassembled for the END, The Energy Never Dies, which steered the peas directly into the rising EDM wave. The lead single, Boom Boom Pow, a stylistic ode to the late 80s electro hip hop sounds of Africa Bambata, became their first chart topper and biggest hit to date, selling nearly 7 million copies in the US and staying at number one for 12 straight weeks. It was replaced atop the charts by the album's second single, the almost maddeningly anthemic, inescapable David Guetta-produced Eurodance come bar mitzvah classic, I Got a Feeling, which went diamond in the US and locked in at number one for another 14 weeks. Together, Boom Boom Pow and I Got a Feeling spent a staggering 26 consecutive frames, half a calendar year, at number one. ND debuted at number one and sold a gargantuan 11 million copies worldwide. It produced another slew of hit singles, including the number one smash I'm a B and two more top tens, Meet Me Halfway and Rock That Body. A year later, the Black Eyed Peas returned once again with a new album framed as a sequel to the END called The Beginning. Once again, the group delivered hits. Both The Time, Dirty Bit, and Just Can't Get Enough went top five, but the project showed signs of a major slip in the Black Eyed Peas commercial dominance. The third single, Don't Stop the Party, stalled out at 86 on the Hot 100, and the album itself, which felt rushed and soulless in a way that made Boom Boom Pow sound like a Leonard Cohen poem, sold less than a million copies, a fraction of what the END had. In 2011, the Black Eyed Peas headlined the Super Bowl halftime show. Five months later, they announced an indefinite hiatus. In 2017, Fergie officially left the group, and in 2018, the Peas released their first post-Fergie album, Masters of the Sun Volume 1, a back-to-basics conscious hip-hop record that almost behaved as if the intervening 15 years had not occurred. Ever the pop-cultural chameleons, the trio has recently reinvented themselves yet again, this time in the Latin pop lane with 2020's Translation and 2022's Elevation. None of these latter efforts captured mainstream attention in the way their Fergie-era work had, although they have spun off a number of streaming hits, including Ritmo, which has racked up nearly a billion plays on Spotify. Will.i.am has also carried out a long-running and very successful career as a producer 
producer for everyone from Justin Timberlake to Rihanna, the Pussycat Dolls, Britney Spears, Usher, and countless others. The Black Eyed Peas have sold an estimated 80 million records worldwide, making them one of the best-selling groups of all time. They have three platinum albums, seven platinum singles, seven gold singles, and one diamond single. They have 10 top 10 singles on the Hot 100 and three number one hits. The Black Eyed Peas have received six Grammy Awards, eight American Music Awards, three World Music Awards, two Billboard Music Awards, and four Billboard Latin Music Awards, as well as one BET Award, one BMI Pop Award, one Juno Award, two VMAs, and two MTV Europe Music Awards. Here with me to discuss the nearly revolutionary absurdity of the Black Eyed Peas is host of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, Rob Harvilla. Okay, so I'm here again with Rob Harvilla, host of the podcast 60 Songs That Explain the 90s and author of the book 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Rob, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back, man. I'm ready. My body is ready. <laughs> Listen, my body's <laughs> recovering from listening to, what is it, eight Black Eyed Peas albums over the last few days. It's a lot. Yes. I guess the kindest way I could put it is it was a visceral experience. I think the reward at the end of that, sometimes weirdly thrilling, sometimes arduous journey is to get to speak to you about it all today. I mean, that was really the treat. Oh, well, that's very <laughs> kind. Likewise. Yes. <laughs> visceral and arduous. Yes. Does that ring true for your experience too? Absolutely, yes. It does. <laughs> it was interesting because I think one thing that I'm going to be into unpacking with you today is the idea of the Black Eyed Peas as so highly derided during their peak era. Both the most popular act on earth and at the same time it felt like really actively disliked by a lot of culture, obviously by the critical establishment, looked down upon. I think one of the nice surprises for me in this listen through or maybe the kindest or gentlest way I can put it is A, a lot of these songs, especially the hits, have held up and are good and are something to recommend about them. I think Will I Am's production can often be like pretty good, interesting. And the place that my brain went to at a certain point, I think during the kind of EDM era when it was almost feeling like the music was maybe a hyper pop air text or was the beginning of AI music as we might know it in the future. I don't really know. Yeah. Was that it almost becomes avant garde in its stupidity. There's almost <laughs> this feeling that I was getting in some of the songs on the last album with Fergie, which is called The Beginning, where I was like, is this almost like an experimental project in just how blatantly and flagrantly stupid something can be. Is it actually challenging us in a certain way? I don't know if that was just because I was so exhausted from listening to so much of their music or if I was just maybe onto something that I didn't see at the time. No, you're for sure onto something. <laughs> I was dropping my son off at school this morning and listening to the second to last album, Translation from 2020, the yes. first like Latin pop album. Yeah. And I was like, these lyrics are dumber in Spanish. Like, I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> but I can understand, like, vamos bailar or whatever. Yeah. It's like, this is even dumber in another language. It's fascinating. But yes, they're just so exuberant in their dumbness. They own it. There's just an unembarrassed quality to them at their highs and at their lows, where it's just like, they are really owning this. They are just not self-conscious in the slightest. <laughs> I was looking this morning at, I think, their most recent VMAs performance, which I think is also from 20 to 20, and, like, their pelvic regions glowed. They had really <laughs> disconcerting outfits. They're just so gaudy. Yes, gaudy. 
but so good at the same time. Yes. I agree with you completely. I had listened to plenty of these albums in real time. I knew the hits, of course, but I really was excited to do this deep dive, even though it was arduous and endless, <laughs> just because I do think that by and large, they have held up and they really have carved out a place for themselves where it's so dumb, but it is forward thinking and very smart in its positioning and knowing where the action is to go from pop rap to EDM, moving into Latin pop with the last couple of records. They're smart about where they are, and then they're just really transcendently dumb when they get there. <laughs> yeah. I think the words exuberant and transcendent are interesting to me because one thing that I was sort of filtering through my brain as I was moving through these records was one of the things that I think makes them work for me when they work and makes them painful when they're painful is when the exuberance and the truth of the exuberance is there to cut the utter maniacally commercial-minded intuition of the group. That's when it works. You listen to a song like I Got a Feeling, in theory, that song drives me crazy. And then when I'm listening to it, it's irresistible. There's a lot of that going on where I'm like, it's so obvious that this is market-tested music in the most flagrant way humanly possible, but you can still feel the exuberance through the market testing. And I think that that gives it more oomph. It gives it something to make you not feel like you're being just absolutely taken for a ride. But then there's certain moments where the exuberance is swallowed up by the commercial intuition. Like a lot of that beginning record, there's moments where it's like, I wrote them down and we can talk about this more in depth when we speak about this record, but they're screaming these platitudes about having fun <laughs> on a lot of these songs. Songs. Yes. It's almost like they're trying to like sell it to you so hardcore and it just is like, mm, I'm not feeling it. It feels forced. It feels fake. So I think when Black Eyed Peas songs work for me, it's when the exuberance feels real enough to mitigate the sort of commercialism of the entire thing. Sure. And when they fall apart for me is when it literally feels like the music was made by AI and it's trying to sell me a human emotion that it doesn't actually possess. No, you're really onto something with the AI. That's a very funny and very true feeling framing for this. I took my kids to like an indoor arcade situation, like a turbocharged Chuck E. Cheese type environment. <laughs> and I got a feeling came on and I was like, yes, yes, this is the exact <laughs> right time to be hearing this song and I really vibe to it. Yes. I agree with you that when it gets strained, there's a my friends are all partying just outside the frame sort of falseness right. to the entire thing. And yeah, I go back and forth on the beginning, but I agree with you completely that that's a record where just like, we're partying. We're partying right now. This is yes, partying like, that's occurring. We're having a great time. We're having the best time ever. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if we are. Yeah. Are it's like, we? why do you keep saying it? Cool. Don't advertise. Yes. Can I ask you as a DJ, yeah. Do you deploy the Black Eyed Peas? How do you deploy the Black Eyed Peas? What is the reaction to the Black Eyed Peas on a dance floor? It's really interesting because I think it can really walk a fine line. I'm not someone that steers away from cheese in my DJ sets. I think that should be obvious to anybody that listens to this podcast. <laughs> I have a deep appreciation for popular music and all of its garish gaudiness. So this is not something that I would need to steer away from in order to seem cool or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I definitely feel like 
songs like I Got a Feeling are not something I would probably turn to in a regular DJ set. Of course, like at a wedding, maybe. Yeah. It's a fine line. Actually, I think the ones that I might pull out the most are my humps, just because it's so ridiculous. Right, right. It works for me in a similar way to a Pussycat Doll song, like a Don'tcha or something like that. Weirdly, I mean, and we are not going to get into this in this episode, all of Fergie's solo hits, I pull out all the time. Sure, sure. Those are all the ones I think that lived on in hipstery culture more so in some ways than the Black Eyed Peas songs have. Songs like Fergalicious and Glamorous and London Bridge go super, super hard still. Okay. That's been my experience. The Black Eyed Peas song that I pull out the most in non-wedding DJ sets is My Humps. I think songs like Let's Get It Started and I Got a Feeling, they just slant wedding. They totally do. Yeah. They slant bar mitzvah. (laughs) And I think that's something that I get a little bit touchy about. But honestly, really like those songs a lot in the context that we're going to talk about today. So let's rewind. One of the more fascinating elements of the Black Eyed Peas, obviously, is that they did not begin as this sensationally maximalistic fireworks show. They began as something entirely different than that. So let's go back and talk a little bit, just light background. Who are the Black Eyed Peas in their original form? How do they come together? What is there that we need to know about the behind the front story of the Black Eyed Peas that feels relevant to this in any sort of way? Yeah. So they're from LA. Yeah. The first sort of shocking data point, if you're coming to them from an I got a feeling sort of mentality, is that Will I Am and Apple D app met in either junior high or high school in LA. And they were in another group previously, and they were briefly signed to Ruthless Records. They were signed by Easy E right. in like the <laughs> early 90s. And that already is going to break your brain. Yes. If you know these people entirely, is the let's get it started. I got a feeling tight people Will is obviously into rap, but he's also, he's talked a lot about being into raves. Mm, Yes. Already he has this sort of dual citizenship, which was not unheard of in the 90s, but I think was rarer in the 90s, right? Like at least in, in the cultural memory, you're more tribal. You sort of stick to your genre. He's a little more omnivorous than the average aspiring rapper already before his career even gets going. Right. You know, one thing I want to do in this early conversation is contextualize Black Eyed Peas in the hip hop sphere because they begin as kind of like socially conscious backpack rappers, which is a very important movement of the 90s that they are attempting to situate themselves amongst. I was really surprised to hear about the Easy e Ruthless Records connection. The name of that group, by the way, was called At Bon Clan or something like that. Two N's in clan. Yes. K-L-A-N-N. K-L-A-N-N. As you mentioned, (laughs) it was Will I Am, who obviously is like the leader of this group. And it was Apple D. App, who ends up being part of Black Eyed Peas, who's a Filipino American. I only mention that because I think a big part of the eventual ethos of the Black Eyed Peas is kind of big, broad multiculturalism and the idea that we span across racial lines. And that was also, I think, a really important element of the backpack socially conscious rap scene. Like I was thinking a lot about the 90s and what they're sort of looking towards as rappers at that point. And you're looking at this reactionary movement to gangster rap Mm -hmm. that is essentially trading in ideas of we transcend racial color lines and it's a about bringing people together. There's this idea of universalism. I think about like arrested development. Yes, very much.
Yeah, so I guess maybe in just helping to kind of understand these two opposing forces of gangster rap and socially conscious rap, is it weird that a group that includes Will I Am and Apple D App eventual Black Eyed Peas member is signing to Easy E. How does that gel in your mind? Well, it doesn't really gel, and that's sort of the appeal of it, right? You're like, what? Yeah. You know, Bone Thugs and Harmony obviously being the biggest success that Easy E had. Right. Post NWA, Thugs is right there in the name, but there is obviously a pop sensibility. There's a broad-mindedness. There's an omnivorousness. There's gangster rap elements, absolutely, to Bone Thugs, but the melodicism, the singing, the beauty mm. of that music is what's striking to people. Yeah. Easy e in that era is already forward-looking in his own right, so it doesn't absolutely make no sense. Just to complete the circle, they meet up with Taboo, right. whose parents, I think, are both Mexican, right? Yes. And as you say, this is very important. You know, Will, I think, has a lot of Jamaican backgrounds. They're covering a broad swath of the world yeah. with just three people. In terms of situating them in rap music, the first Black Eyed Peas record called Behind the Front, it's in 1990. Yeah. Absolutely in the shadow of Biggie and Tupac and their deaths. Right. And just sort of the vacuum that that causes. The funniest thing to me about this record is they just keep saying positivity. Right. It's just positive, 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 positive. They're absolutely framing themselves as like a rebirth of joy and togetherness and universality, as you say, in the aftermath of losing Biggie and Tupac. These rap fans are taking this shit serious. It ain't New York versus L.A. In, in the sense that the opposing force is still gangster rap, but more specifically, it's like Puffy. Mm. You know, it's the shiny suit era. And what makes this really funny is that they start out with a vaguely anti-commercial, not anti-pop specifically, but just the idea of doing it for money. Yes, right. This record is framed by a bunch of cute little skits. It's sort of a game show, like, oh, the record industry is corrupt sort of vibe. It's a very De La Soul sardine. We're an alternative approach. Right. Welcome to the rap gamer, where the business is the music, but the music isn't the business. This record is very obvious to me in who they're trying to emulate, and that's a tribe called Quest. Yeah. That's De La Soul. Right. That's the Fugees. Right. You can talk about more LA-based rap groups like the Jurassic Five, Freestyle Fellowship. Far Side. Exactly. Far Side. And as you said, Arrested Development is really good as well. Yeah. They take a couple straight shots, I think, but adversarially they're opposed to the mace puffy shiny suit era glitz and glamour. Materialism. Exactly. Right. And adding in the live bands, the live instrumentation that they have, this sets them up very cleanly in 1998 as however you would describe it. Alternative, underground, backpack doesn't quite work because they're never good enough rappers <laughs> right. where you think they're trying to go for bars. Yes, right, right, right. This is not a lyric lyrical outfit per se, right. but they do frame themselves as super positive, super organic, super opposed to what's happening in the mainstream at the time, but they're not opposed to becoming the mainstream at a future time. Tell 
the Black Eyed Peas see themselves at the onset as an extension, as a new era of the De La Soul tribe called Quest mindsets. And I think it's maybe important also for us to peg how the audiences are different here. I think it may be hard for contemporary pop and music listeners to understand how divided audiences were in the 90s in terms of what it was okay to listen to as part of different social strata. I remember that this kind of alternative rap scene was making rap music accessible to a group of people that maybe it hadn't totally been before in its other forms. This was a moment where someone that was into like indie rock music or whatever could also find their way into rap music in a way that I felt like there was a lot of division in those communities during this time period. It was socially acceptable for certain groups, I guess specifically of more generally white music heads, not exclusively, but to a specific kind of white person that it might not have been acceptable to be into other kinds of rap music, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. You know, I think about Arrested Development and they were very, very popular at Midwestern, you know, largely white college campuses. (laughs) I'm thinking college campuses. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, just the one shop at every college that sold bongs. Yes. You know, this is the type of (laughs) rap music. And part of it is, you know, I don't listen to rap. I listen to hip hop. Right. Like that kind of mentality. You know, I don't think the Black Eyed Peas have ever thought in those terms. And it's sort of a fundamentally ridiculous framing. But I do think within that framing, the Black Eyed Peas were like hip hop, sort of true to the culture. And that's where the positivity comes in. That's where the live band, the live instrumentation comes in. They see themselves in that lineage. Like as a rejoinder to more like roots hip hop, Mm -hmm. as if this sort of gangster rap and puff daddy version of hip hop had gotten away from the earliest iterations of hip hop which were about fun and dancing and taking a disco break. And there was a fun, (laughs) loving nature to like the Sugar Hill Gang or Curtis Blow or something like that, that perhaps they see themselves as a rejoinder to in some way. Puffy's, his whole thing was dancing. Right, that's true, that's true. I think what was so off-putting to everyone was the suits. Right. And just the extra crass commercialism. You know, and also, and I think this is very important going forward, the obviousness of the samples. Mm. This is something the Black Eyed Peas are going to sort of indulge in their entire career. Yes. But what was really galling to people about Puffy at the onset is he would just be like, this is just juicy fruit. Right. Looped up. (laughs) These samples are undigested. Yes, right. They're not turned into a new song. It's just, oh, it's that song again. You know, and like the Black Eyed Peas will do that, but not yet. Right. So, okay, that's kind of the culture into which the Black Eyed Peas are being birthed into as Rob was getting at earlier, the group becomes this trio slash semi-quartet with this girl, Kim Hill. She's from Syracuse, New York. She's like a television actress, essentially, slash aspiring singer who's living in LA. And she joins the Black Eyed Peas as like an addendum fourth member to provide soulful female vocals, which I think is instructive for numerous reasons, but mainly because you brought up the Fugees. I think that's obviously an important air text to a lot of this. And also because she's obviously the precursor to Fergie. Yes. Black Eyed Peas with a female foil is a really important element of their music throughout their career, including before Fergie gets there and including after Fergie leaving the group. There needs to be a female foil. That seems to be part of the formula. I gotta make your mind, you're someone I wanna own. I wanna be the one you call when 
They signed this deal with Interscope Records. We can actually talk about these two records maybe in tandem, which is their first two, which are 1998's Behind the Front and 2000's Bridging the Gap. We've talked a little bit about the lineage that these records are standing in. They're uber positive, anti-gangster rap, <laughs> conscious rap, all of the things that we've been saying at this point. Is there anything in particular or any particular songs that we can pull out of these two records that feel kind of like the emblem of this version of the Black Eyed Peas to you? I'm thinking about how you're saying at their worst it's like we're partying we're partying we're partying yes i think the same thing happens here with we're positive we're positive we're positive right <laughs> yeah, yeah i do yeah. think these two come as a pair at this point in the cultural memory yeah i think weekends the song off bridging the gap off the second record in 2000 i think that's the first truly great black eyed peas song agree as you say Thoreau, yes singing the hook they understand that they need a lauren yes. they always have known that i I think the key to a Black Eyed Peas song is that there is that elements, that counterpoints. And Weekends is a legitimately great song. And it's also the first time, like I write down all these influences, right? And it's like, but they're not De La Soul. They're not Tribe. Right. They're not the Jurassic Five. But Weekends to me is like a worthy tribute to a roller skating jam called Saturdays. Totally. It's not as smart. It's not as beautiful and lasting, but there is just a huge breezy appeal to it and the lyrics are kind of dumb in a way they're like wow they're really doing well with these dumb lyrics you see it gel here pre-Fergie on this song specifically yes look out And Estero sings in that stylized, jazzy voice that Fergie often sings in, too. Absolutely. That's a good point. And also, as perhaps a prototype, there's a huge sample of Sly and the Family Stone's well-known family <laughs> affair here, which becomes obviously right. bread and butter <laughs> formula for Black Eyed Peas songs here. Again, this record does not sound like the big garish, the time of my life Black Eyed Peas songs, but there's definitely definitely ingredients here that even in this other 1.0 version of Black Eyed Peas sort of carries over into the popular thing. Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it's a Sly and the Family Stone sample that first sort of shows what they're capable of, because that's another key influence, right? Right. The multiculturalism, the sort of psychedelic aspect, the omnivorous musical approach that you can try to do several things simultaneously and do them all pretty well. That's a very Sly and the Family Stone idea. Yes, absolutely. And a a couple other features of this music. Again, you were pointing out positivity. I was thinking a lot wholesomeness. They're very proudly like we are for everybody. There's a feeling that anybody is safe here. They want to make themselves safe for all to consume. There is an almost aggressive feeling of wholesomeness was a vibe that I continuously got. But I think the other part of this that feels really important to talk about on both of these records, because I think the thing that we haven't highlighted here yet is that Will I Am, who's the leader of this group, is also producing all or most of this material himself and is I think a very slick producer from the beginning I mean these albums are very well produced right he's not the innovator that a q-tip is he's not reinventing anything here but the production from Jump Street is very slick the big hit off of behind the front is joints and jams and the production is consistently solid 
The production always sounds good. You always feel like you're listening to high quality music production, which I think is something that kind of belies the stupidity peg that gets put on a lot of the Black Eyed Peas later music. It's very slickly produced at all turns. And Will Am's production can be in turns quite inventive, I think. Absolutely. There's a couple of times it's like, is this Timbaland? Yes, exactly. One or two times it is, but most of the time it's him. Absolutely. And I think slick is the way to put it. And what I was doing listening to these first two records is like, is this a totally different group? Right. Is my humps a total betrayal of what's happening? <laughs> yeah, it, I was thinking a lot about that. It's not an absolute betrayal. <laughs> There's plenty of DNA. There's plenty of continuity. Right. But they do change radically. They become something different. But I don't think that this style or approach or slickness, as you say, is abandoned entirely. No. There's more connective tissue between the first two records and the rest of it than I assumed that there would be. Right. Agree. And there's a certain traceable evolution, like Elefunk shares more in common with this than maybe the later Fergie era. Of course. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of these two records is the rapping. I mean, <laughs> you've mentioned that bars have never been a feature. I do think there is more of an attempt on this early music. Yes, the records are, we're fun. We're having positive fun. This is positive. But there's definitely more of an attempt to say we're a rap group that is attempting to like rap here. Mm. I don't know if it's successful in that way, but I just feel like the music on Fergie era Black Eyed Peas songs, the rapping gets increasingly almost garishly lazy. Mm -hmm. It gets to this moment where it's almost like, is it experimental in just how little effort can be put into these raps? I don't get that sense on this music. I get the sense that they are trying to rap, even if it's not necessarily their Nas per se. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. When I would write down just throwaway lines in these songs, like we don't use dollars to represent we use our inner sense and talent. Right. What else we had? <laughs> bump it in your suburb or bump it in your hood. Yes. It's the return of MCing. Brothers choose the wicked life due to lack of confidence. We got to keep it on the positive. Like, again, it's positive, 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 positive. Yes, very that. Musically, there's a huge amount in common with the chronic G-Funk and everything that came after. But where they're trying to separate themselves is in this sense of we're not thugs. We're positive. Right. And we're not doing it for money. And that's the thing that just comes over and over and over again here. Yes. Which is so fucking ironic. Yeah. It is very, very funny in retrospect. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The constant insistence or sort of turning their noses up at commercial imperative is genuinely pure comedy on this. I laughed so many times and they're making such a fine point about it that it's almost like the lady doth protest too much vibes. I guess the last thing that I would say is that the biggest hit from both of these two records is a song called Request Line, which features Macy Gray. It hits number 63 on the US Hot 100, which is their highest placement to that time. What it made me think of, I think, which wraps up everything we're talking about, is actually the early Black Eyed Peas songs that work best, in my opinion, are the ones that are less about that and more about partying. I mean, if you were trying to find the connection between what works in early Black Eyed Peas music that then gets blown out to 10,000 on the like later iteration of them, is that like I think the songs that are about like being in the club and having fun in the club, it sounds awfully different in the context of these jazzy, boom bap hip hop songs that they're making at this time. But Request Line is another song that's literally interpolating Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, another very obvious sample, and is 
about celebrating, having fun and dancing in the club, which is again, obviously material that the Black Eyed Peas will circle back to over and over and over again. Yes. Those are maybe some of the things we can extrapolate. And the last thing that I want to say is I watched some of the music videos from this era, and I think they do have a pop showman's sense of the visual medium of how to present themselves. There's a lot of detail put into like how they're looking. The music videos are kind of cool looking. There are a lot of them are kind of employing like Hype Williams fisheye music video technique. There's definitely an understanding from Will, I guess, as the leader here about how important all of the 360 degree elements of forming a visual medium pop group in this era are, even as the music isn't quite expanding into the general pop maximalism that they'll become known for. I feel like I can sense parts of Will's intuition that seem music from that kind of Machiavellian perspective. He understands how to be a pop star that is in his sights, even as it's not totally fully formed as an ideal of this group quite at this moment. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing I get from these first two records is they want to be pop stars. Right. They're not yet by a long shot, but they can be. They have the mixture of guile and slickness and talent. It's not craven, but they're going to go where the action is. They're going to mold themselves for maximum saleability even as they insist that they're not. Yes, it just all feels quite earnest in this time period. Like it still (laughs) feels very friendly and earnest. It was a very earnest time. There's a genuineness to it. So after this record, as I mentioned, has a minor hit in this request line song, a few important things occur between 2000 and 2003's Elephant. One is Kim Hill, who is kind of their quasi fourth member, leaves the group. I have to say there's an incredible little like New York Times documentary that chronicles Kim Hill's decision to leave this group. It's really interesting. She talks a lot about how Ron Fair, who was the person that signed them to Interscope, saw the potential that maybe Request Line had brought up and could sense their pop instincts and really was driving the group towards that. Wanted them to pivot more directly towards pop music. And at that time, that meant, as the female of the group, that they wanted her to be presenting herself more sexualized. She mentions very overtly that the guys weren't doing that. That was not coming from Will and crew, but it was coming from the powers that be that I guess were sensing the potential for this group to have larger pop purchase in this moment. That's interesting. In her mind, she was part of and felt that it was part of the integrity of this group, that they were part of this movement against gangster rap and against over-sexualization and against this vibe. And so she chose to leave the group. She essentially said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be that type of girl. And that ended up being the maybe most important thing that ever happened to the Black IPs was that decision on her part because Ron Fair then pitches the group on the idea that they should go more directly towards pop, which they are reticent about. There's a lot of internal conflict and strife in the group about their integrity. And as we mentioned, they're very married to this message and what they've represented thus far. Uh Ron Fair clearly sees the possibilities here and they all decide that they need to have another female in the group that's going to fill the void that Kim Hill had. But I guess now under the guise that when they do decide to sort of explore what it might be 
like to take a popular direction. I think they decide to go all out on that. Sure. And in the early 2000s, they're playing a radio showcase somewhere and Will and the Peas are performing at the same showcase as this girl group called Wild Orchid, which is a group that we're going to explore more in depth in next week's episode, which we'll be covering Fergie's solo career, but is essentially a very minorly successful girl group that has like <laughs> one album that has a few minor hits on it, but isn't exactly like a huge deal and contains a member named Stacy Ferguson, who's Fergie. And Will and Fergie connect at this showcase, and Will expresses interest in producing Fergie's solo album that she's intending to make at that time, as Wild Orchid at this point is essentially falling apart because their second album flops, the label's refusing to put their third album out, but Fergie at this point is in a terrible place. She is becoming addicted to meth. She is not really in a place to do anything. So the group then starts to audition and cycle through female members to replace Kim Hill, including, I found out, maybe the craziest fact in this whole thing, Nicole Scherzinger who eventually goes on to front the Pussycat Dolls, which feels like a group that feels like they share some DNA with the Black Eyed Peas and Nicole and Fergie feel related to each other, but she passes on the group. And eventually Fergie gets herself clean, reconnects with the group and begins recording material just at the same time as the Peas are attempting to popify their sound for their third album Elefunk. And the last thing I'll say in this tale that I'm laying out here is that Taboo is quoted as saying during this period that he'd, quote, rather be selling out arenas than selling out my trunk on the corner of my block, Mm. which I think, as Kim Hill points out in that New York Times documentary, Will and the Black Eyed Peas guys do come from poverty. They come from a really rough part of East LA for the most part. And I think there was a feeling within the group that drove this pop crossover, which was at the end of the day, I think there really was this fear that if the group didn't work out, what was their life going to be like? Where were they going to go? So there was just in the way that Kim Hill told the story there was almost like an economical imperative to what they do next there was this feeling that I think eventually led them to accept Ron Fair's proposal to them which was we have two choices we can either toil in obscurity as people of the integrity of the group as we saw it to this point or we can never go back to East LA <laughs> that was the vibe that I got from watching the Kim Hill documentary and from reading some of these quotes so that's my summary of what goes on between 2000 and 2003 well that's fascinating right Kim Hill is sort of the conscience of the group in terms of their integrity and in terms of not wanting to sexualize herself. Right. That's a very important part of this, right? Right. As I think you said, they go from being PG, cuddly, we're for everybody, to they still have sort of that vibe and all these songs could be played at weddings, but Kim Hill doesn't want to sing My Lovely Lady Lumps or whatever, right? Right. <laughs> she sees the way this is going. But from the outside, if you don't know any of this, you can just think like, oh, they just made a pure pop play and found Fergie on the street or whatever and just decided to do this. Right. The agonizing that goes into this and leaving behind what you were before and being pushed by a label person that it's not your idea initially. But as you say, you realize that it's either you sell 10,000 records as like an nth wave Jurassic 5 type alternative rap yeah. group or like you actually go for it. Yes. And they actually went for it and they realized as they knew from the beginning that they needed a foil. Like Nicole Scherzinger shows up as a guest on later records. 
words, right? Like there's definitely a kinship there. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, because one of the dynamics that feels like it's at play here is, and something Kim Hill talks about in the documentary is, so she saw what the Black Eyed Peas were doing as a positive representation of Black women in a time where gangster rap was over-sexualizing and presenting Black women in this very specific light. And that was a really important element of the group to her. One of the subtexts here is they replace her with a white woman who is willing to be that person, which I think is just a fascinating subtext to the Black Eyed Peas 1.0 to the Black Eyed Peas 2.0 is what has commercial purchase in this era, sadly to say, is probably not a Black woman who presents herself in the way that Kim Hill does, but is very much a white woman that presents herself in the way that Fergie does in this particular moment. And that's not to undermine anything about Fergie or to even deride her presentation of her sexuality, obviously, but I just think it is an interesting subtext that part of what makes the Black Eyed Peas click is abandoning this pursuit of trying to represent Black women in this very specific way in the context of hip-hop culture to sort of adding this white woman who often appropriates elements of Black hip-hop culture but is willing to be like the sexual being that she presents herself as. Yeah, we need a Gwen Stefani, you know, and then they found one. Exactly. Gwen Stefani feels very important to a lot of this, actually. All right, so that brings us to 2003's Ella Funk. Now, before we get into the rest of this record, I want to talk about the song that changes everything for the Black Eyed Peas and kind of does serve as an interesting bridge between Black Eyed Peas 1.0 and Black Eyed Peas 2.0. So at some point during the creation of Ella Funk, they come up with this song called Where Is The Love? I don't know if when you were looking into this, if you saw any of this, but a big thing that they were dealing with apparently in the creation of this record was a reaction and anxiety to 9-11. That was like a big thing for Will and crew at this moment was we need to make a record that is responsive to like the mood of post 9-11 America. That was what they were thinking about. And one of the songs that stems from that idea is this song, Where Is The Love? <laughs> Featuring Justin Timberlake, he comes in and writes the hook for it. Can you talk to me about Where Is Love? How does this song sound? What's it about? And how does it present this next version of the Black Eyed Peas as perhaps maybe somewhat connected to the old version, but definitely something different in your mind? I had not made the 9-11 connection, but I mean, that makes a lot of sense. All of music, all of pop music, whether they were willing to admit it or not, you know, was making pop music in the shadow of 9-11 and sort of the mood of the country at that time when you're either moving with it and going into something more cynical and more dour, or you're very specifically trying to be like, positive, positive, positive. And these are the people who I believe would believe that they could heal America <laughs> and the rest of the world <laughs> with just one song if we can get Justin Timberlake on the hook. Yes. You know, and where is the love? The lyrics are ridiculous. Yes. The entire <laughs> song is ridiculous in its cuddliness, but it commits. There's an endearingness. Yes. The usual binaries of irony and sincerity just don't apply to this song or to anything these people ever do. <laughs> There's a difference between doing it for money and not believing in what you're doing. They believe in the thing that they're doing for money. They stand by this. Right. They're not cringing. They're honest about their limitations, especially lyrically, and they go for it, even when what they're going for is this sort of cornball uplift. Kids bop what's going on. Kids bop what's going on is perfect. Absolutely. But I do think <laughs> the confidence with which they deliver it makes it work. They believe it. And I do think there's this sort of ineffable quality where if you think that they think that this is good, then it becomes good or it becomes better than you thought it was. It's a very cheesy song that still does kind of make you feel good, even if what makes you feel good is feeling superior to it. <laughs> wow, yes. Come on, I don't know. 
You know, a couple of things that jumped out to me about what you were saying and then some general, like as I listened to the song over and over again, is if we are thinking of this as like an ersatz, what's going on? It's like Justin Timberlake is the perfect ersatz. He's just like the blue-eyed soul of Justin Timberlake. And Justin Timberlake attempting conscious music is always <laughs> one of the most uncomfortable things of all time. Totally. I remember this song from Future Sex Love Sounds where he like sings from the perspective of a crackhead and it is one of the most horrific moments in pop music history. Like it's just awful. But yeah, I mean, I go back and forth because I definitely... Definitely didn't like this song at the time, and I still would say that I don't really like this song that much. But at the same time, I do concur with the sense of earnestness. There is something that they come by very honestly here that it's both craven and yet there's something genuine about it that I guess makes it hard to like fully turn your nose up at. But what was weird for me, honestly, as I kept listening to it over and over again, is there's this kind of conspiratorial bent to the whole thing. There is this sense of you're being lied to. The the news is lying to you in the guise of this very boppy bop kids song <laughs> is a lot of deep state mentality. There's almost like a QAnon vibe. It's kids bop QAnon. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Like, listen, wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images is the main criteria infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Back you know, oh, God. A war is going on, but the reason's undercover. Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism, but we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA. There's a very deep state conspiratorial bent to the POV here that's fascinating getting shoehorned into a rainbow Barney song. The more I listened to it, the more I was like, this is a very dissonant song in some ways. That's hilarious. I don't know. Maybe I got too deep in the weeds. No, no. A couple <laughs> moments on the last two records, which are 2020 and 2022, so we're obviously very COVID informed. They sort of go back to this mode, like, what's happening? Yes. Conspiracies, togetherness. It's the same sort of approach where they're trying to unite you, right. but they're trying to unite you around the idea that the media is lying to you, you know, and jet fuel can't melt steel beams or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. And then at the same time, it has a very, very tried and true take on pop activism that almost reminds me of Rhythm Nation in a sense of the answer to the world's problems are coming together and not seeing race lie. And you know what I mean? Like that's like yes. the, right, and dancing. I was thinking of the lyrics. If you only have love for your own race, then that only leaves space to discriminate and to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Bars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. So this is Where is the Love. This becomes obviously the breakthrough smash for the Black Eyed Peas at this time. It becomes a top 10 hit in America. It goes number eight. Interestingly, doesn't feature Fergie, but I guess you have Justin Timberlake, so you've got some pop singer filling that void. Let's talk about the rest of the music on Ella Funk. What is happening on this record? How would you describe the music here? How does the approach change? And I guess we can get into this secondarily, but how is Fergie employed to good effect in your mind? on these songs. 
Yes. Fergie is not as prominent on the whole record as I assumed she would be. Mm. I don't know if it's that she's not fully integrated yet, but she's not a constant presence necessarily. There's more of a rock thing happening. Let's get it started. Previously known, let's say, as Let's Get Retarded, we should say. I will never 100% believe that they actually named that song. Not to scold them or whatever. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? I just will never believe that they actually called it that. But they did. They did. <gasps> they did. Cooler heads prevailed eventually. But Let's Get It Started feels like a crossover play. There's just enough rock to it. It's very, very explicitly pop. The foregrounding of Fergie on this song. This is the song that for me marks the break with the past. Where is the love? There's a lot of DNA of those first two records in its relentless knucklehead <laughs> positivity. <laughs> Let's Get It Started feels like the song that they wouldn't or couldn't have made on the first two records that they're making now to like usher in this new era. Everybody, everybody, let's get into it. Get stoned, get it started, get it started. I agree with you completely. Where is the Love is not even close to my favorite song in this record. It's very funny to me that the song before Where is the Love is the Papa Roach song. Oh my God, yeah. It's called Anxiety. Yes, again, another post 9-11 scream. Anxieties bash my mind in, terrorizing my soul like Bin Laden is a lyric on this song. Oh my God. Well, why don't we leave Bin Laden out of it? But Papa Roach, <laughs> Papa Roach is on this record. Yes. But the moments that I like on this record are where I feel Will as a producer. Yes. The sort of electro aspect, the song sexy, the lyrics are absurd, but if you tune that out, there's a slinkiness to it. I'm a record and you're like a record. So let's let the DJ mix us. You're like an elixir. They got me chipsy. This is just like Ripless. Believe it or not, but I love your girl. You really got me going out of control. The Boogie That Be, even saying these song titles is taking years off my life, but I really like a lot of the production and a lot of the slickness yes. that is now coming to its own as like futurist, maximalist pop music. You can see this transition coming, and I dig those parts of this record even more than the big garish hits off this record. Right. I think Let's Get It Started really does feel like a linchpin moment for numerous reasons. I mean, it is interesting. It's like an airsats mosh anthem is what Jason King kind of referred to it as, which I think is really interesting. It's almost like a Mighty Mighty Boston's song. It's almost like a... Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, and that's a crazy thing to say, but it was the thing that popped into my head. Yes, yes. the horn section. Yes. Do, 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 do. That's awesome. Yeah, but I love it as the sort of genesis moment because the entire song is about celebrating being stupid. This song is almost like a mission statement for this group <laughs> moving forward. Literally, the lyrics say, we got five minutes for us to disconnect from all intellect is like one of the first lyrics of the song, which might as well put it on the Black Eyed Peas tombstone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's much longer than five minutes that we disconnect from intellect. Yeah. It's 10 years of disconnecting from all intellect. Precisely. Yeah. But the idea of proudly getting stupid, that feels like a mission statement. This is like the Declaration of Independence for the Black Eyed Peas to me. From intellect. Yeah. Like, I would never suggest that you turn your brain off. You need your brain for a lot of things. But I do think that this band is five times better if your brain is off while you're listening to them. 100%. And then I actually do really love the song Hey Mama and that's a song that obviously is like a big moment of Fergie getting featured again another song that's just really about dancing it's almost like a raga dance hall electro raga song essentially You brought up Gwen Stefani earlier. I feel like a very important pretext to this album and to the Black Eyed Peas right at this moment is Rock Steady, No Doubt's 2001 album in which they also took a very explicit kind of electro pop turn after attempting to sort of like have a lot of rock cred, especially on their second album. It was a moment where they sort of said, fuck this, we're going pop. It very much set up Gwen Stefani's solo career. They brought the Neptunes into the mix. They brought Nelly Hooper into the mix. They were making electro pop songs, essentially, that didn't sound very much like a band at all. And a lot of yeah. reggae dance hall elements became prominent in the music at that moment. The song Hey Baby, mm-hmm. which was the lead single from Rock City really reminds me of Hey Mama a lot. There's a lot of similarity here in terms of the electro dance hall vibe of this. But the thing about Hey Mama that I just want to point out is Fergie is a fucking superstar. Mm -hmm. They got something here. Fergie does more on this song by just going la 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 than the rest of these guys do (laughs) in anything that they do on the rest of the song. Let's put it this way. And again, I don't want to demean these other two men by any stretch of the imagination, but like Taboo and Apple D. App are the luckiest motherfuckers on the planet Earth. They're pretty fortunate dudes. To have known Will and to have gotten in contact with the supernova pop star that is Fergie. Fergie is, she's camp. She's go for broke in the way that this band exactly needed. And she has fucking star quality. Right. She really has it. When she sings and you watch the music videos for these songs, you can't stop watching Fergie. Right. And she's a very strange pop star to emerge at this moment. She's in her early 30s. She's a former meth addict. It's not like she's exactly the person that you might peg to be like the new pop diva du jour at exactly this moment. But she definitely has it. And that was a thing that really jumped out at me on the songs where she is showcased on this record. The most obvious one, I think, being Shut Up, which is a number one song across the world. Slightly less of a hit here, but is essentially like a melodramatic camp guy versus girl soap opera between Will and Fergie. Whatever you want to say about it, they go for fucking broke and Fergie (laughs) is a superstar. Yes. It is so obvious how much none of this would have worked without either her or someone that has what she has going on. That was a big thing that I felt through this music. 
Absolutely. I agree with you completely that Fergie is the breakout star and Fergie and Will have better rapport on these songs than Will has had with Taboo and Apple D app. Another thing that I was listening for the entire time is those guys. Like I was trying to just fix them as individual personalities and they're definitely secondary, oh, yeah. but they do work in this context. And I think that this band needs to be a band mm. and it needs a couple guys who can hang, but aren't focal points. They're like accent pieces. Yeah, they're important even as they are clearly supporting characters. Right. And you do get personality from them and you do sort of learn to differentiate them and their perspectives, right? Like Apple has a bunch of songs where he talks about the Philippines and coming from the Philippines. Man, it feels good to be back at home and it's been a decade on a journey all alone. I was 14 when I first left Philippines. I've been away half my life and it felt like a day. This is a very important element of them, as we've been saying from the beginning, is the sort of united colors of Benetton global coming together that this group represents and that is legitimately sort of fascinating about this group. The other thing you said, the Neptunes, I think, are very important in the same way that Timbaland is like the gold standard in production, but like Will in his best moments can remind you of Timbaland. The same with the Neptunes, I think, in this era. Yes, absolutely. Will is not an original trailblazer but he's very good at what he does. Yes. The best songs on here are produced incredibly well. They're so campy and slick. It really is impressive. And the other thing about Fergie that I just want to throw out is she has a dark edge to her. You can tell she's been through shit. She is not just like an empty character. She's got a bit of an edge to her that I think really adds something here to the sort of utterly go for broke party music. Totally. You can tell Fergie's seen shit in her life. She's been through some shit. <laughs> that really adds stuff to a song like Shut Up. But I think and correct me if I'm wrong, the Black Eyed Peas albums, this is something we're going to talk about through the next three after we talk about this one, is they always start out the first half of them, I feel engaged. I'm like, wow, this is way better than I thought it was going to be. I'm excited by what's happening. <laughs> and by the time you get to the end of it, you want to blow your brains out. It's just so much muchness. And they're all too long. Hour plus. There's too much music. It's always too much of a good thing. That was the vibe that I had on every single one of these Black Eyed Peas albums. Is that ring true to you? It absolutely does. They are front-loaded for sure. Yeah. The back half is a slog. Yes. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. All of these records are like a hard hour. Yeah. It feels like it even if it isn't quite. They're so dense with production, with glitz, with allusions to other pop songs. There's just so much to take in that you're just exhausted. There's a hangover quality to the back half of any of these records. Yes. <laughs> yes, 100%. 2024 has been an absolutely bonkers year for pop music. It feels like every single girly in the universe, and fine, even some men, has dropped a new record. It's been a lot to process. Thank God our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, has got you covered. Every single week, we drop a bonus episode of this show, going long on everything from Taylor's The Tortured Poets Department to Beyonce's Cowboy Carter, Dua Lipa's Radical Optimism, Casey Musgrave's Deeper Well, Ariana Grande's Eternal Sunshine, Billie Eilish's Hit Me Hard and Soft, Charlie XCX's Brat, and all the 
the other big albums from this year, and all with a coterie of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. When we're not talking new albums, we're digging through new singles on our new music speed rounds, deep diving on classic albums, recapping all the big tours, and so much more. All that, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and tons of other great perks. So sign up at the icon tier now by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon, or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also now subscribe for the audio only directly in the Apple Podcasts app. At the end of the day, these records are a way better vessel for what Will I Am does well than his Tribe Called Quest illusions on the previous. He is a good pop producer, and like this was a good move because this record sells 3.5 million copies in the US, <sighs> 9 million copies worldwide. It is a smash hit. Where's the Love, as I said, is a top 10 hit. Shut Up is a global number one hit. Hey Mama is another huge hit for them worldwide. Let's get it started. So this album has four really big songs on it. It sells super well. They come back in 2005 with another record kind of building on this formula more or less which is called Monkey Business. How would you describe what's happening here? Is it an expansion of what's happening on Ella Funk? Is there anything new in the mix? What works for you here? What doesn't work? How does this record work in contrast to Ella Funk in your mind? I think that this record is just my humps and like the crater <laughs> that my humps creates whether you love that song or despise it and i support either opinion i think my humps just breaks this record in half okay so let's talk about my humps because this song is perhaps weirdly the signature black eyed peas song maybe i don't know maybe it's i got a feeling but if it's not i got a feeling it's my humps why is this song so divisive i mean the thing that was really interesting to me about this song going back and reading contemporaneous critical assessments of it is people really hated this song i mean people were like, this is the nadir of popular culture to this juncture. To me, I'm like, yes, my humps is asinine. It's ridiculous. But so are so many pop songs. Why is this song so different than Milkshake? Why is this song so derided? What is it about it that makes people hate it so much? Mm, okay, the Milkshake contrast is very interesting. I think there was just an inherent cool to Milkshake. Yes. Which is both Khaleesi's and the Neptunes. Yes. There's an aura of cool and intelligence around Milkshake. It's sort of the same thing with Missy. Just thinking about Work It, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Work It is bars, but it's a very different conception of what bars are. Sure. <laughs> and it's very clever and funny. Clever is another thing. These people have never been clever a day in their lives, and they're very proud of that. <laughs> no, and no. obviously critics <laughs> respond to clever and respond really angrily to not clever. Right. <laughs> but I just, I do think that the way your brain processes what you're going to do with all that junk, all that junk, like this <laughs> song turns your brain off even if you don't want to turn your brain off what you gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk i'ma get 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 you drunk get you love drunk off my hump 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 my lovely little lumps Check it out. I think everything that we're saying about how earnest they are in their stupidity yes. and they're willing to go for it, their refusal to acknowledge any irony, sincerity, sort of <laughs> binary. Right. Just, this song is called My Humps. It is about the parts of your body that are sort of hump-shaped that create <laughs> sexual attraction. We will now dramatize this. What is happening? I totally understand anyone who thinks that this song is like a low point in human civilization. Yeah. 
And I think it is proudly trying to be that. Yes. At the same time, I never hated this song or thought it was the low point of civilization, but I like it a lot more now than I did at the time. Let's put it that way. It's camp. Camp is right. Yes. I mean, whoever's taking this at face value is an idiot. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> you're the stupid one. The lyrics literally are mix your milk with my Cocoa Puff milky milky. I mean, give me a break. This song is funny. And I think that they know that and they are consciously being that way. Mm-hmm. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Everyone has has their right to like or dislike whatever makes them happy. I mean, I'm not trying to get on your case, not your case, on whoever's case, but this is not supposed to be sexy. It doesn't think it's actually sexy. Ooh, that's interesting. It's not trying to be sexy. It's funny. It's trying to be comedy. I mean, what you gonna do with all that breast inside your shirt? There's nothing (laughs) sexual about that, you know? Yeah. I mean, come on. It's funny. It's funny. And Fergie is an incredible vessel for camp. That was a big thing that I was thinking about a lot through all of this work is like she really goes for broke in a way that makes the campiness work. Like she's funny. She's comedic. She has a sense of humor about herself. I think situating yourself in that way will make this a lot more fun for you than it would be if you are trying to take it at face value or something like that. Of course. Not you, Rob. You listener. I know what you're saying. Don't funk with my heart. That's where you can... I can hear most clearly what you're saying, that Fergie is a star. Yes, for sure. Fergie is now the dominant element of these records. Yes, this is a great song. It is. It's beautiful. As you've been saying, it's really well produced, yes. really slick, really forward looking. This is where the Fergie and Will mind meld really yes. works for me. And it's less about him lyrically. It's less about any kind of Q-tip fife sort of lyrical connection. It's about <laughs> she is an ideal vessel for his production. A hundred percent. But there's also, this is also the record with Jack Johnson and Sting on yes. it. Those are the moments where you're like, okay, yes. this is getting a little too explicit. Every Black Eyed Peas (laughs) record is loaded with clunkers. And it's not my fucking humps. It's the Jack Johnson song, let's be honest. Okay. But like, just going back to Don't Funk With My Heart for one second, it's a really interesting expression, as you're saying, of what makes this group in this iteration so cool. Because I kept thinking, how do you even describe what this song is? Now, 2023, where we really like have broken down a lot of genre barriers, a song like Don't Funk With My Heart, what is that song? I kept trying to write down, how do I describe this song? It's kind of Bollywood, a little surf rock. It's hip hop. I don't even know what it is. It's unclassifiable in a way that I find really fascinating and makes me respect Will I Am in a way that I kind of wouldn't just at passing glance. It's just a really post everything kind of song. And I actually think the employment of the Lisa Lisa sample here is actually very, very effective and done very well. Like this is a postmodern gorgeous piece. Yeah. I really do love this song and it really made, it made me think. And I think same goes for Pump It, the opening song which is another wild take on Dickdale's Miserloo. It feels like you're taking a bullet train through space. Like it's fucking <laughs> crazy. Like this song is amazing. This is an incredible song. It's garish, it's gaudy, it's all the things that people say the Black Eyed Peas are, but it's also a thrill ride. I mean, I really like this song a lot. Pump it. Pump it. Pump it. 
that opening punch of Pump It and Don't Funk With My Heart is pretty good. Pretty undeniably great. Absolutely. You're right that they are sort of pre or post genre at the same time. Yeah. They make wedding music. Mm -hmm. That's what they make. They make maximalist wedding music that the whole family can enjoy or like enjoy <laughs> hating together as the case may be. Right. Enjoy or hate watch. And I think the only other song that jumped out to me as worth mentioning from this record is the single Don't Lie, which I also think is fantastic. It's like a breezy, boppy, more muscular, vocally adept Gwen Stefani. There's certain moments where I'm like, right. Fergie is like Gwen Stefani if Gwen Stefani could actually do some singing. <laughs> no offense. I love Gwen Stefani, but I'm just saying... All four of the singles on this album are great, in my mind. For their own reasons, they're all very memorable and really good. And then I had the same exact reaction where it's like, you get to the back half of this thing, and I'm like, mm -hmm. this is endless. It's very long. This is miserable. A lot of songs on this record. A lot of individual tracks. Yes. The one thing that I did think was funny, the song After My Humps has Talib Kweli on it. Yes. They seem to realize the crater that My Humps will create. And it's like, we just want to remind you that we're rapping. Rappers, we know a lot of rappers. Right. And here's a lot of A Tribe Called Quest references in the second verse. Right. Don't be mad at us. I feel like this song is saying to rap fans. It's just very funny. They literally say at the end of it, they repeat the refrain over and over again. Black Eyed Peas represent selling out. <laughs> they know what they're doing. They certainly do. They are in on this joke. You know I'm in the I do think it's interesting that they're reaching their commercial peak while the music industry is cratered. Mm, interesting. I think it's even more impressive from a commercial standpoint is they're in the aftermath of Napster, the pre-streaming, the dead zone that the aughts seem to represent now in retrospect. Mm. The fact that they're able to sell millions of records at a time when suddenly nobody can sell millions of records anymore makes the numbers that much more impressive. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and I also think it's interesting to situate it in the place that pop music more broadly is in this moment, which is in a bit of an in-between phase. Mm -hmm. We're not in sort of the peak era of shiny suit dominant rap and the fat Joe Jaw rule, Jennifer Lopez hip-hop and B moment of the early 2000s and we're not quite in the Lady Gaga and on moment of EDM dance pop. We're in this sort of genreless middle zone period of pop music that I think actually allows them to be the perfect answer to the problem. Yeah. They're not a specific thing. They're not part of a specific world. They're just sort of pop writ large. There's not really like a specificity to it that I think allows what they're good at to work specifically well in this particular juncture in pop music history. They're there to fill a role that needs to get filled that just works right here in this mid zone moment for pop in general. Totally. All right. So Monkey Business, an even bigger hit than Elefunk. It sells over 4 million copies in the US, over 10 million copies worldwide. It spawns a series of hit singles that we've been talking about. Don't Funk With My Heart goes number three. Don't Lie is a big hit, top 20 hit. My Humps, obviously infamous forever, is a number three <laughs> hit as well. And Pump It is also a pretty big hit, but has gone on weirdly in the streaming moment is the most streamed song on this album. I didn't realize because it wasn't as big of a hit in its time, but I don't know. Maybe it's a TikTok thing that I haven't realized but it's had some sort of glow up in recent years. And then basically we get a 
very, very long hiatus because what happens after Monkey Business and what will be covered on next week's episode is Will I Am goes on to produce Fergie's debut solo album, 2006's The Duchess, which goes on to be a blockbuster monster smash, home to three number one hits, I think, or two number one hits and five top five hits. I mean, it is just a juggernaut. And Will I Am also attempts a solo career that is monumentally less successful than Fergie's. The success of The Duchess probably codifies how important Fergie is to the Black Eyed Peas in general. They return, I guess, with Fergie now cemented as obviously the biggest star in this group. Right. In 2009, with this record, the END, which stands for The Energy Never Dies, which again, the Black Eyed Peas know what they're selling. <laughs> Let's be honest. They are true to brand at every turn. <laughs> I think this is really interesting because of what I was saying earlier, which is this sort of moment in pop music, whereas the 2005 monkey business era is a moment of nebulousness in pop music, 2009 is the opposite of that. Pop music is hyper pinpoint focused on a very specific thing, mm-hmm. and that specific thing is big, dumb party. music, 120 BPM, dance floor filler, Euro dance pop runoff filtered through Calvin Harris and David Guetta and Lady Gaga dance music. That's where we are in 2009. And I would say that the END represents the Black Eyed Peas' incredible ability to know exactly what they need to do to adapt to this new climate. Would you agree with that characterization? Totally. This record is a brilliant adaptation to a completely new era of pop music. You can see this as a stark a pivot from the last record as their abandonment of the underground rap of their first two records. Yes. This is as stark a change, you know, and as shrewd a pivot, you know, to just go totally EDM because they're perfect for the party, 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 party mindset, yeah. right? Like they've been doing it their whole career already. They might as well. This is their moment. Music has finally caught up to the Black Eyed Peas. Right. Spiritually, if not musically. Everybody's trying to be dumb now, you know, but we can be even dumber than the people trying to be dumb. So there we go. And it's perfect. And here's the thing that I started to think about with this record. And I want to spend some time talking about the first two singles, which spend a consecutive 26 weeks at number one. For half a year, there are two Black Eyed Peas songs that are the number one record in the country. Just think about that for a second. Anybody that needs an illustration of what this moment was like for the Black Eyed Peas, half of the year was two Black Eyed Peas songs at number one consecutively. So we're going to get back to that in one second. I think the thing that I just want to say broadly speaking about this record that I thought about when I was listening to it this time is I kept vacillating between thinking what I brought up at the beginning of the conversation, which is this is proto AI. (laughs) If a computer synthesized what pop music should sound like in this exact moment, this is what it would spit out. And yet at the same time, the level of profound stupidity gives the music quirk. It gives it personality. It's not quite AI music because of their patented brand of idiocy. The almost garish attempt it feels like to write bad rap verses. It weirdly, as jaw-dropping as some of the words on this music is, it gives the music personality. It takes it out of feeling like it's utter AI. Yeah, the chat GPT of their lyrics across the board is very funny. I'm so 3008, you're so 2000 and late is the perfect Black Eyed Peas lyric. 
Yeah, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to remember it forever. So the lead single is called Boom Boom Pow. It contains that iconic Fergie <laughs> lyric. How would you describe this song? What does this song sound like? What is it drawing on? What is happening here? I mean, Rob, this is a profoundly weird song. It is. There's other songs in this record that feel like pop by numbers, pop songs. This does not feel like that to me. I mean, this is one of the weirdest things they've ever made, I think. Okay. Um, What's the hook? Let's start with that. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Right. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, so you find that to be a conventional hook? <laughs> I'm trying to see this as unconventional in an even more unconventional way than everything else they've ever done. There's been like an electro influence on Will's production from the beginning. Electro and like the L.A. rap scene of the early 90s sense of the word. I am fascinated by how that carries over kind of, you know, in a shadowy form, even as far into the future as they get, both chronologically and musically. And so I think that you can create a through line to what he's always been doing production wise on this song. But yes, so this is the weirdest thing they've ever done to you. That's very interesting. I mean, it's like a Frankenstein. You've got the kind of 808 and heartbreaks by way of Africa Bombada's Planet Rock production, which is a very interesting way into dance music for a group that maybe still wants to shore up its hip-hop bona fides. They still want to say we're connecting this version of pop music to hip-hop culture. I think the references to Africa Bombada's electro-pop aesthetics from the 80s, I think that's a very smart and interesting and weird way to have the Black Eyed Peas be like, okay, there is still some connective tissue to who we were originally, even if it's very obscured in the mix. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, you have so many funny campy elements. I mean, one of my favorite moments in this song is Fergie basically adapting the Soul House diva whale of Robin S and mm -hmm. just going like, This song is just a total camp fiasco. Right. There's no real hook. There's a little Daft Punk in there. Daft Punk is huge for me on this record. I hear Daft Punk all over this record. Yes, for sure. It's just so crazy sounding. I mean, this is an all hell breaking loose Black Eyed Peas song in a really fun, weird way to me. I don't know. I find this song weird. I think maybe the thing that makes it the weirdest to me is what is the hook of this song? For a group that is the most cravenly pop minded of any group in history, this is really a gigantic pop hit that doesn't have a very obvious pop hook. That's me. interesting. I noted the earworm aspect of it, the insidiousness of it. The whole thing maybe is a hook. I think that's it. You know, it's less about repeating one phrase 10,000 times, which they do plenty, and more about somehow every individual element of their sound now is constructed that way. Yes. It's sort of this Voltron of potential hooks that forms one giant hook, even if you can't articulate what the hook is exactly. Yeah. And then like the utterly slathered auto-tune the garishness just reaches its apex in a way that I think is great. I really like this song. <laughs> I think this is a good song. All right, so that's Boom Boom Pow. That song is number one for 12 weeks, I believe. But the real crown jewel here is I Got a Feeling. I got a feeling that tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good, good night. 
produced by the king of this space, David Guetta, mm-hmm. feels important here. How would you describe this song? I mean, this is probably their signature hit, probably their biggest hit. We talked a little bit about it up top. What is going on here? This is the wedding song, right? And this is the universal positivity song. This is the Ur EDM song to me. Mm-hmm. Just that mindset. I laugh every time at the moment. It's like a two-second sequence. It's in a verse somewhere, and they're ad-libs, and Fergie goes, drank, and Will goes, Lahayim, and it's like... <laughs> Mazel tov. Exactly. Drank and Lahayim in sequence in three seconds is just the funniest oh. thing in the entire world to me. I think camp is a wonderful frame for all of this, and that's where the camp peaks for me, absolutely. I do think that I Got a Feeling breaks this record in half in a similar way to my humps. I understand that there are other huge hits, but it's hard to imagine Boom Boom Pow as a number one hit for 12 weeks. I guess I believe that, but when I listen to this record, all of these songs are at least the first half. Again, like we're front-loaded out the ass here, but I do think that I Got a Feeling just towers over the rest of this record in terms of the hook and in terms of the ubiquitousness of it now. Yes, absolutely. And it's got real build. I mean, the thing that I could say just structurally about this song is it has the tension of a true house song Mm. in a way that like a lot of the EDM hits of this period really don't. This song really, really slowly builds steam to a giant release in a way that most of the EDM pop songs of this moment were kind of instant gratification versions of house music that really did not sort of explore that build properly. This song really slowly snowballs into an explosion at the end that is very gratifying. I mean, it's extremely fun. Let's live it up and do it, and do it, and do it, do it, do it. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, do it, do it, do it. Here we come, here we go. We gotta rock, easy come, easy go. Now we on top. There's certain moments in pop history. I think Shake It Off by Taylor Swift is another one that hits me in this way where it's like, I hate them in theory, but when I'm listening to them, they're irresistible. (laughs) Yeah. Shake It Off is definitely the one. That's cool. I can see that. Like, they don't do drops. Yes. They're never that basic about it, where it's just wait for the drop, you know, like in a Skrillex sort of way or whatever. Like, they're a little more sophisticated, if that's the word. Yes, they're a little more sophisticated. Exactly. (laughs) When I think Black Eyed Peas, Rob, I think sophistication. Absolutely. Eloquence. Yes. I think it's also important to position here that they continue to try to employ sort of high-minded ideas into this utterly stupid music. I mean, they talk a lot about this music being responsive to the recession and their role of providing a space for people to have release from their financial struggles or whatever. Sure. We talked about this when we talked about Cindy Lauper, Rob, which is, I don't think pop music has to be secretly sad to be good. That's not needed, and I think that it's an annoying critical tick that goes on. Sure. But I did start to think about this song as one of the interesting elements elements about this is it's actually not a song about partying and having a good time. It's a song about hoping that you're going to party and have a good time. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that gives depth to it. The narrator here is going, I have a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. It's the anticipation. It's the anticipation. Exactly. And I think the structure of the song also lends itself to the build of anticipation. The song is constantly building towards something. There's a feeling of ramping up that I think really suits that feeling of anticipation. It becomes the thing it wants to be. Exactly. And it adds depth to it because the narrator needs the good time. I I start to think, okay, like this is someone that really needs this night to go well. He's almost wheeling it into existence. You know what I mean? I need a win. 
in here. Right. Yeah. I need this escape. I need to cut loose in this way. And I think that that helps me frame the utter cavalcade of cliches that gets uttered in this song in a way that makes it make sense to me. I listed them just in case you want to know what they are. I want to hear them very much. We have party every day, yes. of course. We have Mazel Tov, I have. We have pour up my drink, of course. Sure. Let's live it up. Absolutely. Jump off the sofa. <laughs> Smash it. Smash it. Let's burn the roof. Wow. Let's burn the roof. <laughs> Let's burn the roof. Fill my cup. Yes. I got my money. Yeah. I think that that framing, I might be digging here, but on listen number four to this, I was like, okay, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's why this song has power that some of their other Let's Party anthems we're going to talk about, especially on the proceeding album, are going to ring less true to me than this one does. I really like the idea of the anticipation of that. I hope that this night goes well. And then the back half of the song is the night going well. That's a beautiful moment. Right, exactly. I get that. Absolutely. All right. So this is number one, I believe, for 14 weeks on the Hot 100. It is one of the biggest songs of the decade. It's one of the biggest songs of all time. It is by far their most streamed song on Spotify right now. I think it has 1.2 billion streams. And I think the next one is something like 400 million. This is the Black Eyed Peas song that will probably go down in history. What's happening on the rest of this album? I mean, I have to tell you, Rob, this is the best Black Eyed Peas album to me, I think. I mean, I think the first half of this album is good. Meet Me Halfway, which is the third single, is a pretty well done, like, again, bringing her up, Cindy Lauper kind of homage. It's a little bit time after time, kind of a new wave vibe to it. It gives a nice showcase for Fergie singing. It's a good Fergie showcase. Really like that song a lot. I'm a B. Big hit. Listen, there was a tweet once that was like, once you hear I'm a B as I'm a B, <laughs> and that they're just repeating the term I'm a B, you can never unhear it. So that song's been ruined for me, unfortunately, because of that. I think you're probably right, unfortunately. You just did it to me. So thanks. I'm a B. I'm a B. I'm a B. I'm a I'm a I'm a B. I'm a B. I'm a B. I'm a I'm a I'm a B. Rich baby. What? What? Rock That Body samples Rob Bass's I Wanna Rock Right Now. Of course it does. Right? Turns it into like a trancey EDM anthem. Alive is an interesting like kind of Daft Punk homage, I felt like. I wrote down Daft Punk for that as well. Yeah. So I think they have half a really solid EDM record here. What do you like about this or dislike about the rest of this album? I think that this is the most front loaded. This is the record where it's like the first six or seven songs are really like, holy shit. And then you get to like ring-a-ling or whatever. It's like, I would like to stop partying yes. now. You get to party all the time and it's like, <laughs> I don't actually want to party all the time. Oh my God, party all the time is the moment on this record where I was like, please make this end. You have the good version of this on I Got a Feeling and then it's almost like they're parodying everything that was good about I Got a Feeling and ruining it on a song like Party All the Time, you know? If we could party I would like to read you some lyrics from the song Now Generation, yes. which is the third to last song. Okay, here we go. Fast internet, stay connected in a jet, <laughs> Wi-Fi podcast, blasting out an SMS. <laughs> Text me and I'll text you back. Check me on the iChat. Oh I'm all about that HTTP. You're a PC. I'm a Mac. I want it. MySpace and YoSpace. Facebook is a new place. That's what I have to say. 
just some food for thought there. I don't think there's really anything else to say. I don't have anything else to say. Yeah, that's the end of the end. As we mentioned up top, I think the most important part of this was how brilliantly they were able to sort of rise to the moment of this new sound and how well they fit into it. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that I would say about this is perhaps this is a a moment where really the other two feel incredibly superfluous (laughs) to me. Yeah, this is not Taboo's ideal environment. No, I wonder where they are in the mix of all this. Like, I would love to know like what's happening in the studio and how much of this is just Will and then Fergie. Right. It's interesting, but a really canny record that sells 11 million copies worldwide. As we mentioned, Boom Boom Pow, I Got a Feeling Our Number One hits, I'm a B is also. <laughs> I'm a B. It's, oh my God. Which now you're only going to hear us, I'm a B is the number one hit. Meet Me Halfway is also a top 10 hit, as is Rock That Body. So this is a massive, massive hit. And they then return for, I would say, the last real canonical Black Eyed Peas album. I mean, we can discuss what's coming after it. I mean, I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it in a second. But okay. the last Black Eyed Peas in their imperial form is a very quick and what feels like it was quickly put together Rushed. follow-up called The Beginning, which is led off by this song called The Time Dirty Bit, which talking about the rejoinder to the sample culture that we were talking about earlier. I mean, it is like a shoehorned in sample of Time of My Life. It's hilarious. The brazenness, the puffiness of it, however you want to put it. It's like, remember this song? Yeah. What if Fergie sang that song? That would sound a little different. Not really. No, not really. Like, oh, but I love this song. Yes. This song works for me just in the audacity of right. it. You know, and just dirty bit. It's like, this is the dorkiest thing I've ever heard, but it's pretty good. Yeah. But it doesn't stack up to Boom Boom Pow and I Gotta Feel It. No, of course it doesn't. There's a song on this record called Love You Long Time in 2010. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. Wow. This is not a good album. I have to say, this was my least favorite of the Black Eyed Peas albums that I listened to to this point. Now there's a song called Don't Stop the Party. They seem to be aware that you're trying to stop the party and they refuse (laughs) to allow you to stop the party. Just Can't Get Enough is a very good song. And that's a Fergie song. This is another Fergie is the focal point. She's the star. The hook is what pulls you through this song. Yes. But there's too little Fergie on this album in general. I agree. I kept going, where's Fergie? Where's Fergie? We need Fergie. Someone get Fergie back on the line. Where is Fergie at? And I guess maybe she was losing interest in being in the group because this was her last album with the group. So I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. But there's a real lack of Fergie. This is the album where the craven commercial instincts of Will I Am feel like they absolutely crush some of the earnest, fun-loving qualities that make the rest of the music work for me. This is AI. I mean, this is soulless music. I was like, is this early? hyperpop in the sense of making pop music that's sort of stripped for parts, blown out to its most garish, gaudy version of itself, like a song like XOXO. I was like, this could be a Sophie song. It sounds two ticks away from being a Sophie song. Girl, you stole my heart like a klepto. Butterflies in my tummy need Pepto. Bismo, baby, give me more sex though. It's your pleasure like I'm gecko. I don't know if that's accidental or on purpose or like what's going on here, but this record feels like pop music made by a computer. And I really 
found this to be an empty listening experience, more or less. The hyperpop thing is interesting. I don't think I'm an expert at hyperpop particularly, but there's always been sort of an intellectual or more academic or more scientific quality to the deconstructive aspects. It's on purpose what it's doing. It's on purpose, right. I think the intent and the sort of intellectual drive of hyperpop, at least in my conception, is very different from what the Black Eyed Peas are ever trying to do. Like XOXO, I got a lot of the knife. Mm. The chromatics come up for me on a few songs just a little bit. Yes. I do think there's a consciousness on this record of what the cutting edge of pop music, you know, and sort of dance oriented music is. And I don't think they're trying to be cool or trying to be indie or trying to be trailblazing in that sense. But I do think there is always from the very beginning an awareness will has of everything that's going on around him, both overground and underground. And he brings in just a little bit of that knife chromatics, maybe pre hyperpop moment in addition to just doing the children's story like Slick Rick regurgitated sample thing. Yes, I think that there is describing the Black Eyes Peas as avant-garde in any way is an insane take (laughs) and I understand that. And I stand by what I said about this music feeling very soulless to me on this particular album. But I do think Will I Am the production is often way more thoughtful than the lyrics in Black Eyed Peas music. There's a lot more yes. heft, thought, skill, nuance in some ways that goes into producing one of these songs than that goes into what gets written on them. You know, sometimes I would wonder on these songs, what would this production sound like if somebody with more going on was the writer or singer of one of these songs? Because Will I Am has produced songs for more sophisticated pop stars in the past. So you can hear examples of what Will I Am music might sound like if it's not Black Eyed Peas music. And he is a much more dynamic producer than he is a rapper <laughs> or than Apple the App or Taboo R rappers. Yeah. It's interesting, but this was the least successful of the Black Eyed Peas with Fergie albums to me. And I can sense how much this was a commercial grab because of course they also do the Super Bowl soon after this in what I think is maybe the worst Super Bowl halftime performance of all time. I wow. rewatched it the other day. Okay, It's awful. Have you watched it? I have not revisited it recently. It's very, very bad. Unfortunately, I think you're probably right about that. It's really, really bad. And this record, it sells way, way less than any of their records have in the past. It doesn't even go platinum in the US. The time, Dirty Bit goes number six. None of the other singles really hit. So this is kind of the end of something for the Black Eyed Peas, interestingly. Fergie leaves the group soon after this to focus on being a mother. There's an eight-year hiatus that transpires between this record and their return in 2018 with kind of of a reinvention or maybe a return would be a better word for what Masters of the Sun Volume 1, their 2018 album, which is them as a trio, essentially. They kind of go back to a formation that resembles the Kim Hill thing. They bring in this new soul singer, J. Ray Soul, I think is her name, to be the kind of female foil. And they go back to making alternative hip-hop music. It's almost as if the entirety of their pop career didn't happen. This was the sequel to Bridging the Gap or something like that. Yeah, Rip Van Winkle wakes up and is like, is there a new Black Eyed Peas record? <laughs> the first song on this record is called Back to Hip Hop. Back to Hip Hop. There you go. Featuring Nas. Featuring Nas, yes. This is a very funny record to me as like, we would like to go back to being a rap group now. Like, you didn't see any of that. All of that was imagined. Let us never speak of this again. It's like they bring out the Men in Black laser pan and just try to like erase your memory. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Boop, boop, boop. I'll violate all the guitars and I'll and operate like I'm on. Oh, let me get
saying cause I'm behind bars and rearrange DNA play like God I break it back I think Taboo and Apple D app feel more comfortable. They are still not focal points. No. But they feel a little more integrated into this type situation. There's like a Fife Dog verse two years after he died. Yes. Right? He died in 2016. This is 2018. And like you hear Fife Dog's voice and for a second you're like, oh, like what's happening? But the song All Around the World with Fife and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, there is some slight appeal to me. Yeah. This record, the relative humility of it. Oh, yeah. Smallness. Like, we just want to be rappers. The smallness. Yeah. There's some cool, quiet, mellow is not the word, but compared to everything that we've just forgotten happens, there's a simplicity here that you can get into. Warmth. A warmth. Back to Basics is such a hilarious framework for these people ever. <laughs> but like, if you buy into that framework, you can get into this record, even as like it's sampling Soul to Soul, Tom's Diner, the Beastie Boys, Slick Rick. They're still doing the sample thing. But this does feel like an organic. <laughs> it doesn't feel organic no. at all, actually. Never mind. But like, I get what they were trying to do. No, no, no. I get what you're saying. I mean, look, I'll probably never listen to this album again. <laughs> I had never listened to it before and I will never listen to it again. Yeah, yeah. But that's fine. It was a relief totally to listen to this album after what had happened before. That's true. It was at the end of my day yesterday and I was just like, thank God for this. This is like a <laughs> bubble bath compared to the icy, cold-hearted nature of the beginning. How these two things are connected to each other is extremely tenuous by the time you get to the beginning to this, but it just felt like the same vibe that I had on the early Black Eyed Peas album. Right. Well-produced, neo-soul modding, hyper pop positive 90s hip-hop and i think the funniest part about it as we were sort of bringing up is this men in black pen like the idea that we could just move on from that obviously this record is no blockbuster <laughs> this album is good reviews honestly shockingly critics seem to enjoy this <laughs> i think your relief was shared by lots of people at that point yes relief there was relief but it doesn't chart in the u.s and none of the singles do well that's sort of objectively wild yes isn't that crazy it is crazy actually yeah i mean again fergie right fergie fergie it's will i am's production but it's fergie fergie really was a pop star she was a main pop girl they got a pop diva she had it without her the whole thing kind of doesn't stand on pop terms not to devalue what they do without her but sure. in pure pop terms they needed fucking fergie and that's obvious and then of course there's been two more albums since then which are 2000's translation and 2002's elevation that are like latin pop grabs. They are. And you've referenced these a few times. What do you think about L Black Eyed Peas? L Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> <I'm, laughs> what do you think about most Black Eyed Peas? Yes. The lyrics are somehow dumber. I took high school Spanish. Yes. And loco bailar. They are dumber in Spanglish than they are in English. <laughs> As you were saying with Spotify play counts, the second biggest Black Eyed Peas song on Spotify is on translation, is on the first record. It's Ritmo. Yes. So interesting. It is. The first time I looked at the play counts for this record is like, I missed this entirely. Me too. Ritmo. 
there are two other songs, Mama Sita, Mama Sita. Yes. Holy crap. Yeah. And Girl Like Me yeah. with Shakira, yeah. both above half a billion plays. This record is so much bigger than I thought it was. I know, it's wild. But yet they're not top 10 hits or anything like that. Like if you look at their Billboard chart positions. Yeah, they're coming back into an era where you can be huge on streaming and not have any chart presence. Yeah. And that's really fascinating for them to be in. These records are enjoyable as like turn your brain off, like basic level. I want to get into Latin pop. If this is your first time hearing J Balvin or Becky G or whoever, right. you know, you can actually go on and listen to the real thing, you know, and find out how sort of kids bop, I think, continues to be a very comfortable <laughs> phrasing. Kids bop reggaeton. <laughs> kids bop reggaeton. Elevation is a less good and also less successful. It's the same as the end and the beginning, right? Yes. The album covers are similar enough that you are supposed to understand this as a continuation and just a less good version. I think J. Ray Soul, as you said, is starting to take on more of a focal point. No offense, but she's no Fergie, but who is? No. David Geta is back. And that song, Don't You Worry, is like also almost 300,000. A big hit. It's a big hit. They didn't fall off to the degree I think plenty of people assume. They fell off the pop charts or just the scale that I got a feeling represented. But these records are way more successful, at least in terms of raw plays, than I assumed they were. And they sort of work as yet another going where the action is. Just as they saw EDM taking over, like now Latin pop. Now Bad Bunny is who we have to shamelessly imitate. And they can do that. Yeah. And so they do it and it's fine. It's just so interesting <laughs> because I started to think there's kind of three Black Eyed Peas epics. There's the first two albums, then there's mm -hmm. the Fergie era, or maybe the Fergie era you could put into two epics and then there's this era. And I almost started to think listening to the last three albums that completely escaped my consciousness. I mean, I yes. maybe was aware when they put out a song with Shakira and was like, oh, the Black Eyed Peas made a song with Shakira. Interesting. Or they're trying to make Shakira into Fergie, whatever. Right. But I almost was like, is Black Eyed Peas just a brand umbrella under which various things can fall? Yes. Less so than a group. You could almost shift to all the members of the group and it could still be the Black Eyed Peas. Maybe Will is the only intractable part of the Black Eyed Peas in some way. Unfortunately, I think that's true. I feel bad for Taboo and Apple the App. I mean, again, the luckiest people on the fucking planet. <laughs> they are. Rob, admit it. I'm not denying that. I, yeah, I get you. They're definitely multi-multi-millionaires. They probably worked very hard and whatever, but it's just, they're very lucky. My point is, I kind of started to think Black Eyed Peas is less like an act and more like a brand. Like, it's an overarching idea. Could you just have an entirely new configuration of people and they be the Black Eyed Peas? Maybe. I don't know. The Black Eyed Peas can be whatever you need them to be in a way. Like a touring production of the Black Eyed yes. Peas. They're like Hamilton on Broadway. <laughs> No, I get you. <laughs> that was what I started to think. There is like a personality vacuum post Fergie. Yes. That I do think that you can rationalize as like a feature, not a bug. Yes. They can go anywhere and be anything, mm. you know, put these guys in the sphere. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to think of another pop group this successful that has so stark a divide in terms of eras. Yes. The Black Eyed Peas eras tour. That would be insane. <laughs> that would be That insane. would be insane. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
We need that. I'll go to that. I mean, I guess another thing that carries through to the later music and the earlier music is they need the female foil. It goes from being Kim Hill and Estero to being Fergie. And then in this later music to being, as you mentioned, there's Nicole Scherzinger, there's Anita, there's Shakira. That's definitely a thing. There are guys who like, like to have a female foil in the mix. Becky G, it's an important element to Black Eyed Peas songs. All right, so I guess this brings us to the end of our discussion. I guess the last question that I want to ask you before we get to the Pantheon is what is the Black Eyed Peas legacy? Do we see their influence on pop music and stars that have come after them? Like when the obituary of Will I Am and Fergie and all of them is written, what are the things that they added to pop more broadly, do you think? <sighs> okay. I think that I Got a Feeling is the song has emerged as the one to rule them all. I don't think that was immediately obvious, but it's obvious now. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that we'll over-index the EDM era and the idea of them ushering in and the maximalist positivity anthem, EDM culture, if not EDM in practice. Yes. I think there's a lot to the fact that they were so garishly commercially successful at the trough of the music industry. I think that's very impressive. I completely agree with you about all the main pop girl stuff. I think that Fergie is the breakout star. I agree with you that the Duchess as a record, like Clumsy is the one for me. But if I'm going to put on an album from this extended universe, front to back, I think I would reach for the Duchess before I would reach for even the Black Eyed Peas records I like better. Agree. If I have to spend an hour with these people, I'd rather just spend it with Fergie on her Agree. own, quite frankly. I think that they're always going to be more successful than you think. The numbers that you've been throwing out, you know, in terms of play counts, in terms of number of copies sold, like 11 million copies sold in 2009. Yeah, it's That's wild. wild. That's just unprecedented. There's not a lot of other groups, acts, artists, pop stars who can point to just this sheer level of commercial success yes. in the various ways that we've defined commercial success over the course of their career. I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where like my humps is critically reappraised. <laughs> I agree with you completely about the camp classic elements of it. I don't think we're ever going to get to like a critical reevaluation of the Black Eyed Peas because I don't think they need that or want that. Right. But they played the Super Bowl. I'm sure plenty of people including me for a time, forgot that they played the Super Bowl. Yeah. And like, maybe it sucked. It probably sucked, they but they did it. <laughs> it did. So I do think that they're very easy to underrate if only on a sheer quantifiable basis. As you said, half a year with a Black Eyed Peas song at number one Insane. is just so hard to even wrap your head around that you're inclined to just believe that it never happened, but it did. Yes, it did. <laughs> I think that's all really well said. And I think there is something about the polyglot genrelessness of the whole thing that I do feel feels prescient. I think that there was a throw everything in the kitchen sink kind of vibe to the whole thing that we do live in a moment where a lot of pop music feels kind of unclassifiable in this way and I think that there was a certain forward thinking prescience to Will I Am's approach to blurring the lines between rap and pop and dance music and all of these things together and not seeing a lot of boundaries there that feels profoundly stupidly ahead of its time. Hop in the music and rock your body. Right. 
So let's talk about the pop pantheon. Rob, where do you see <laughs> the Black Eyed Peas slotting into the pop pantheon? This is tough. Do you have tears you want to throw out and we can pick it apart? Where are you thinking on this? I mean, let's start by eliminating, I think, high end. Yeah, one and two are out of the conversation, I think. No question. Okay, one and two are out of the conversation. Okay. No question, yeah. I think, do the numbers make a difference to you? Is this a spiritual classification or is the commerciality a part of it? It's both. I think we start with the numbers yes. and then we add the spirituality on top of it. We rationalize our way to the yes. spirituality. Yes. Exactly. Because I think numbers wise, they got to be in tier three, it feels like to me. That's what I would say. My heart kind of hurts a little bit to say that, but I don't think it's deniable at the scale they're operating at. Who's in tier three? Yes. So in tier three, we have put, no doubt, Gwen, Jennifer Lopez, TLC. This is perfect. Yes. This is perfect. Well, poor TLC, but this is but, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Ariana Grande. Sure. Christina Aguilera. Sure. One Direction. Yeah. We put Cindy Lauper there. We did. Wow. Katy Perry. Oh, your arch enemy. Tony Braxton. Tony Braxton. Okay. <laughs> no, I think the Gwen, no doubt, and even Katy Perry seals it. Miley. Miley. Okay. All right. Yeah. There's a ceiling to a few of these people. Yes. Ariana Grande. Some of these people are young enough. That they could go elsewhere. That is not true of Gwen Stefani or No Doubt, certainly. That's not true of the Black Eyed Peas. I think this is it. I think we got it. Yeah, I agree. I think tier three is where I would put them as well. Okay. You'd have to be dinging them for how much they're derided to get them out of there. And I'm certainly not going to be the person that does that. Nah, it's... I understand completely people who just will not deal with this shit at all. That is a completely valid response to my humps in particular, but any of it really. <laughs> but... A Assessing this on its own merit, yes, I think tier three is the way to go. I'm with that. All right, so last question, Rob. What is an underrated Black Eyed Peas song, something you enjoyed from your deep dive that you would like to put people onto that we could send the show out on? Okay, I don't know if this is one of my favorite songs of theirs. It's not, but it's sort of a closing the loop type moment. The last record, Elevation from 2022. Yes. The biggest hit on this by far is called Don't You Worry. It's got Shakira on it. David Guetta's on it again. <laughs> And it is very clearly like a remember, I got a feeling type moment. Very much. They want that again. This is sort of a grim moment to go out on, but I really love the way you talk about the structure of I got a feeling, the trying to convince yourself that tonight's going to be a good night. Don't you worry is the same thing, but everything's going to be okay. Yes. Unfortunately, this song just mirrors the mood of the country in 2022 versus the mood of the country in 2009. The very reasons for that. Let's just leave it out of there. But there's something so self-soothing about this song yes. that is clearly trying to recapture a former glory with the same people, minus Fergie notably. But there's something very sad, very forlorn about just the idea of trying to make an I got a feeling in 2022 and landing on a song like it's going to be all right. It's going to be like, just calm down. Yeah. We're going to make it through this together. Right. That being an accurate capturing of the mood of the country and of the pop music sphere in 2022. Unfortunately, this feels true to me. Yes. And also, <laughs> what could be more Black Eyed Peas than insistent positivity, even when it's completely unbelievable to any normal person walking the face of the earth? <laughs> 
let's go out on Don't You Worry, Black Eyed Peas, Minus Fergie, plus Shakira, plus David Guetta. <laughs> Rob Harvilla, thank you so, so much for ushering me through this. What do we call it? A sometimes thrilling, often arduous journey. <laughs> it's pretty arduous, but I had a great time. Thank you so much. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Black Eyed Peas, they are officially certified in tier three. The judgment is rendered. I want to say a big, big thank you to the brilliant and hilarious Rob Harvilla for being such a great guest. I want to thank, of course, Russ Martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week, to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy merch at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous Brooklyn on February 3rd and Gorgeous Gorgeous LA on February 17th. We will be back next week with our part two of this series on Fergie. And until we see each other again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. This is how we do it, baby. This is what we say. It's a look at through your eyes, say, don't you worry.